0: I have friends in Silicon Valley who could not watch Silicon Valley, or show on HBO because they said it just uh, hit too close to
1: home. <laughs> they were like, it's too real. For me, it was a real wake-up call because I think it was season two or three. We would sort of do these trips, right? We would go to Silicon Valley and we would show the episode and we'd sort of like tour companies and get to see what they were working on. And they were very excited to have us because, because you know, we're, <laughs> we're doing a show about, about, about what they do. I was stunned at what little thought was going into the moral and ethical ramifications of the technology that they were working on. I remember, I won't name the company, but they were showing us this new product that's now on the market that many people have. And they were like, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. And so we brought up a privacy concern. They were shocked that they were asked this question. They didn't even have like a fake corporate answer ready to go. They were stunned and a little upset and disappointed that we would even think of that.
2: So we just got breaking news, Andrew, literally right this second. You want to break it? Yeah, the
0: the feds are uh, bringing uh, a suit against the Dr. Robert Haddon that assaulted Evelyn and dozens, maybe hundreds of other women. Uh, It looks like he's going to be sent to to jail Uh, and they're picking up where the DA of Manhattan somehow declined to prosecute. Uh, And so the doctor has been sitting in a house in New Jersey, essentially taking early retirement. And I am so thrilled that justice is being done, uh, though it's, it's very late in coming not just for all the women that suffered at the hands of of Dr. Haddon, uh, but also in my mind, he's a danger still. You know, I mean, the the guy is Mm -hmm. uh, like a pathological sex offender, just free walking around in New Jersey. Uh, I don't even think he had to put his name on any registry or record. So, you know, like, and and so the the fact that he's being sent to, to prison uh it's it's a massive relief and it's also a massive source of pride because i feel like he'd still be free if not for evelyn's courage coming forward so thank you to everyone who supported evelyn and thrilled that justice is being done uh better late than than never
2: um so i was with evelyn when she did her cnn interview um a couple things there's there's nothing you can do to take back the horror this man has caused in so many people's lives, um, in Evelyn's and in many other women. But um, hopefully this is some sort of, um, this feels like justice and feels great. Um, it's one of the reasons we love CNN. Dana Bash and, and Bridget Nolan, who we worked with on the piece, and, and their whole team were just, they were world-class. They were just um, sensitive, they were real, but they were, um, they were honest, they were fair. Um, and it's obviously a tough topic. Um, so I'm forever grateful I think we all are and I'll, I'll say this um our campaign did a lot of things um and a lot of good things um but if the only reason we ran was to put that guy behind bars somehow that still feels worth it you know um yeah this is a this is a pure good we accomplished people so thank you and uh, and
0: thank you for all the support thank for you all. yeah and thank you for support for um Evelyn and our family, uh, she she really appreciates it. And now there are a lot of uh, women right now who are, who are also feeling like their voices were heard and that they had some measure of uh, justice for this doctor that assaulted so many of them.
2: Yeah, it's um in a world right now where things are pretty dark. There's not much to look forward to all the time, this is this is good news. This feels fucking good, you know? <laughs> this feels really good. So, uh, Rotten Jail, Dr. Haddock, what's his name? I don't even bother learning that guy's name. Dr. Haddon, yeah. Wanted to share with all of you, and for all of you that were involved um, with sharing or supporting Evelyn or the love, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, justice was served. All right, guys, on today's episode, we've got the one and only Kamel Nanjani star of Silicon Valley, star of the Big Sick, writer of Big Sick, um, and also just got ripped for his new Marvel movie. Pretty cool. But before that, Andrew and I talk about WWE, we talk about wildfires, we talk about ransomware, and we even make some hot NFL predictions as the season just opened. So tune in, Kamail Nanjiani and Andrew Yang here on Yang Speaks. Welcome back to Yank Speaks. Andrew, how are you living, man? COVID fine. 2020 good. Uh, the, you know, the, there's always a qualifier, <laughs> but I, can't, I certainly can't complain. Oh, uh, man. Um, so the pressing issue this week, man, you, you went off relatively unprompted, although I've heard you go off on this um, in private and a couple times in the campaign show. You just went on a Twitter rampage on... Um, <laughs> On Labor Day against Vince McMahon, who is the founder and I guess CEO still of the world World Wrestling Entertainment WWE, that's what that stands for. A proud Connecticut
0: business, you might know it well. Yeah, I, so it wasn't entirely <laughs> unprompted. Uh, they came out with a policy that was restricting pro wrestlers uh, from using cameo uh, under their name and likeness, which. Uh, struck yeah. me as absolutely ridiculous uh, and so the so the first <laughs> thing I said was, wow, this is strange given that they're independent contractors. It's like on what universe can you restrict independent contractors from just going on and uh, leaving video messages of themselves uh, but then uh, I thought like uh, about what it really meant and you're right that I've been thinking about this for a while. Uh, And I came out with a policy about it in regards to MMA fighters, uh, which is to me a systematic exploitation where they're getting 12 to 15 percent of the sports revenues uh, instead of the 50 percent that other sports are getting their athletes. And WWE has a lot of parallels. It's not a sport in the same way, um, but it kind of has all the features of a sport uh, in terms of being talent driven, people risking their lives uh, and exploitation in the wwe's case so they label everyone as independent contractors uh meanwhile they don't get health care they don't get recovery time which is crucial which is one reason why a lot of these wrestlers get addicted to painkillers and other drugs because they have to go out there and yeah. perform all the time and they're always afraid that if they say look I, i'm not gonna get out there this week or you know this month uh they'll lose their spot because that's the way vince works that's the way uh the business works uh, so, this is all uh, flying in the face of them being independent contractors, particularly when the WWE in particular controls your life, more or less. Like, they they, they tell you where to be, yeah. what to do, how to look, how to act. Um, you can't do this, you can't do that. Like, they'll control tons of elements of your professional life and even to some extent your personal life and then they'll say but no no like you're an independent contractor yeah yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah yeah and and so i uh got angry and then i went on a little uh tweet storm and um i was prompted to the zach uh by a professional wrestler who sent me the original cameo story uh like uh, a professional wrestler who felt exploited was like this shit is ridiculous so it wasn't just that andrew yang was like you know like uh got upset it was that some wrestlers were upset but could not actually vent about it because uh you know like vince has has absolute power and could and and if you are a wrestler who doesn't even work for vince you can't say shit because you might eventually want to work for vince like like that they're uh not Mm. quite a monopoly but um but they function like it in in some respects. It's one reason why I'm excited that there is genuine competition arising in the form of uh, AEW in particular, because uh, I feel like that company has a real chance to um, introduce reform. And that company has a chance to introduce reform in part because it's talent friendly. Uh, There are many very senior executives that are current wrestlers. Uh, And so it's a different animal than the
2: WWE. Okay, so I grew up in musical theater, um, which is not cool but um, and very different than wrestling. However, so to me, you could look at them as athletes, like professional athletes, or you could look at them as actors. They're probably somewhere in between there. So if they're athletes, you pay them like athletes get paid and they have a union and they get to negotiate and they get paid based on a chunk of revenue, right? Like they do in the MLB or NFL or any of these any of these arenas, or if they're actors, right? Actors have a union on Broadway. They actually have an act, actor's equity card where they, you can't get exploited. They can't be that sort of, you need to give them benefits. You need to give them X, Y, Z hours. How would you, how should it be structured? Um, and then why have we, is, are they, It's two questions. One, how should it be structured? And two, why is it, are they in limbo? Is it just, to me, it's like, yes, maybe Vince is an asshole but I also kind of stuck in this like we don't know what you are so we can just do whatever we want with you. You know, Is that part of it too? What do you think on those two things? Uh, there was an online suggestion that they
0: should be unionized under the Screen Actors Guild because they are essentially are uh, performers on screen. Uh, and so SAG would take care of a lot of this stuff. But uh, I think the professional sports analog is closer in terms of the risk they're taking physically. Uh, I mean, for me, the... Big issue is what the nature of the benefits they're getting. So if they get them because they're members of SAG or, or their own union, fantastic. Or if the WWE were to say, look, you're clearly employees. Uh, I mean, heck, like, you know, you, we control lots of elements in your waking life. So guess what? You all get health care. You all get retirement benefits. You all get an off season. You all get this like, you know, however we get there um yeah we just need to get there Uh, and one of the things i said which got some news or or buzz was look if i'm not the secretary of labor like i'll know the secretary of labor like we can get this done uh and it's it actually falls under the national labor relations board uh, but the national labor relations board are appointed by the administration so right now you have a bunch of uh trump appointees who are putting any action under the rug uh because vince and and trump are good friends from way back dana white and trump are also friendly uh it's it's funny the parallels between who owns uh, ufc yeah wwe and and ufc here there's a lot of exploitation going on uh and there are things we can do about it as soon as uh there's a different administration
2: it's clearly illegal to me my question is like when this stuff happens to other athletes there's usually more uproar and wrestling is super possible, uh, popular. Excuse me, in its own world, right? It's I mean, it's massive. It's prime time. On, yeah, top like some TNT of the top or, cable
0: rated uh, shows every week. I, I think WWE, yeah. last I checked, was a
2: billion dollar business. Uh, you know, I haven't looked at the market. Yeah. cap lately. But there doesn't seem to be the the same uproar. You know, what I'm saying is it because it's wrestling? In that you're either a, you're either a wrestling fan or you're not. There's very few casual wrestling fans. I think. Um, like, why is there not as much uproar? Or is it because a lot of these fans of WWE maybe lean more right? And so they're less, they care less about it. Um, I, or- I grew
0: up a massive wrestling fan. I feel like every kid in my town did. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't think politics really enters in myself. It's like, is every 12-year-old leaning right? <laughs> <Fair>. <laughs> you know, like, I don't think that. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. But but I agree with you. I think wrestling has its own domain uh, in the culture and it doesn't really interact or intersect with mainstream politics uh a lot of the time UFC is similar Where just no one gives a shit because no. it's a fighter or a wrestler and to me that's so dumb because mm-hmm. these are people that uh are humans yeah that dedicated years and years of their life honing a craft uh you know they're risking their bodies every time out there uh and it's a billion dollar business. So what the hell are we waiting for? Uh, but I, I agree with you that for whatever reason, uh, it doesn't get the attention it deserves in the mainstream news. Uh, and I'm going to keep beating the drum until that changes. Cause I'm sick of this. Like as a fan, uh, it's upsetting seeing so many of your childhood heroes die early because these wrestlers are yeah. abusing themselves in order to keep their jobs. Uh, and then they die of a heart attack at you know forty five or you know like whatever the heck the age is
2: right um and, and they're physical know. specimens too they shouldn't be you know they should be taken care of you know you know what I'm saying they're not you know they don't are these are some of the most elite bodies in in society you know like they're they should be in great health in some ways um but they're dying because they're they're not paid or not taken care of or it's Got a it's a changing. difficult
0: lifestyle, and there are elements of it that you can't do much about. Uh, but there are elements you can do something about, yeah. and you should do that. So, it, I think yeah. in wrestling's case, it's crystal clear because uh, you know, like they have a lot of discretion over what they can do. Um, there, I mean, you could have an off season for wrestlers uh, that's baked in. You know, like they just get a month off uh, or sure. more. I mean, heck, professional
2: athletes get. There's no off season. They just go all year. Yeah, yeah. What?
0: If, if you had an so If you're The Rock,
2: you were going the whole time? You're just going? If you are a high level wrestler,
0: you're still getting paid on, like, very often an appearance basis. And so at that point, you're making more money than you've ever made. And you show up not just for TV tapings, but if there were tours, as there normally are during house shows. So you might be performing no uh like 200 times like a a, you know like in a given 18 month period or something like uh it's like and so you can imagine and a lot of this involves travel to a different place so one of the complaints that wrestlers have is that they don't get a break uh and instead if you're a top draw then the culture is like well you better show up because if you don't show up you're going to lose your spot and then you're like oh snap i spent my entire career trying to get into this position so then let's say you hurt yourself you
2: just have to keep going yeah
0: you you hurt yourself earlier that week what are you going to do you're going to pop some painkillers and get out there uh and yep. and so that that's what
2: what happens to a lot of these guys for for those of you like me you're like not didn't grow up a wrestling fan like oh this stuff's fake just watch a clip of wrestling. Like, yes, it's fake in terms of it's somewhat scripted. But if they're jumping from the top of a rope, they're still jumping from the top of the rope, right? They're still slamming their body on the ground. They're still picking up a full grown man um, and slamming it the ground. Like, you know, even if it's scripted or they're not really punching each other, they're still taking a beating, right? Like, you've th- I, it's it's a gnarly sport. It's
0: very very difficult on your body. You can liken it to stuntmen, really. You know, it's like like real life stuntmen mm. going out there and. Uh, performing yeah. and then packing up their stuff and then driving to the next town and doing it again.
2: Yep. Um, you ever see that movie concussion with Will Smith?
0: Um, yeah. Yeah. There are parallels there. About I mean, the that, you know, it's the NFL. Yeah. And well, he says,
2: Will Smith has a line in there that I thought was fascinating. He said, look, it's not about whether or not being a warrior is right or wrong. Um, Cause some people get really, you know, when the football concussions were happening, people were like, well, we shouldn't be hitting each other that way. And he's like, it's, that's not what it's about. It's about, america needs to take care of their warriors that's what he that's one of my favorite lines in that movie like we got to take care of these they, they entertain us they um you know we they've they're bred in our system you know like we worship these guys and gals we need to take care of them i think that's pretty logical and that's why if you're listening to this you're not a wrestling fan that's why you should care because the principle of this that we care about money more than people um is pervasive throughout society and these are massive examples um
0: america needs to take care so, of its warriors uh on every level so that's the veterans who return home—that's oh, people yeah. are risking their body for our entertainment every given weekend or every given week.
2: Our nurses on the front lines, all of it, yeah. Um, you uh, so the final tweet in your your thread was, Vince, you'd better hope your old friend Donald wins because changes in the air and changes are long overdue where your corrupt labor practices are concerned. It would give me great pleasure that people know. So for Yang gang out there that followed him on the campaign, like I had the same motion you had like, fuck yes, Yang. Like this is the, I wish you would take off the heads of some of the, maybe the your democratic primary contenders at times too, but maybe, you know, there's some political strategy there, but I love when you get angry. um, And it's uh, it's terrifying when it's directed at me, man, but most of the time it's pretty awesome to watch. So uh, thank you for that tweet, <laughs> boss. <laughs> Uh, you get really you're really humble about it too because you don't get that angry um, very often but when you do it's it's a sight which I love so and appreciate that um gonna change gears um I want your thoughts on this and I don't think you have a lot of thoughts on them which is why I think it'll be funny um so it turns out one of the major California wildfires was started by a gender reveal um so Andrew I we were talking about this a little bit before and I want to dive in I don't think you're familiar with gender reveals. so is is it
0: what i think of in gender reveals it's like a cake and you slice into it and then like the flavor of the cake tells you whether you're having a boy or girl so someone obviously knows and then you don't know Uh, so that's what occurs to me but i i did not know fire entered the equation
2: so they started these things and the woman um who popularized gender reveals Um, which I'm I'm not really, I could do more research, but I don't think people care of how that happened. But let's say the woman credited for popularizing gender reveals said they've gone too far. Um, This is getting ridiculous. But basically people go nuts and they have these, um, they're like canisters of of, of smoke, either pink or blue. Um, And they, they have a a friendly explosion Um, and they've done anything from like pinatas and baseball bats to soccer balls. When you kick it and it turns a color and some of them are cute, but generally no one gives a shit. Um, You know, like no one. And to me, it bothers me because I don't know if your friends having a baby, you already got to go to the baby shower and then you got to give another baby gift, Um, a gender reveal party, which people are having and then posting on Instagram and YouTube, whatever it is, is another way to me just to, I have to pay for another gift. Um, let me ask you, Andrew. Have you ever? You didn't do a gender reveal for for your boys? No, no. You? We just
0: knew uh, as soon as uh, <laughs> it was medically possible for us to know because medically possible because like I you know you're I'm I'm a practical sort and uh, was like well sooner we know sooner we can, uh like prepare. yeah prepare yeah and when when we found out that our second was going to be a boy i was like well i don't need to get much because i think we we can just pass all the <laughs> older ones stuff down um so yeah. it, to me uh, what's going on with the wildfires is such a catastrophe and yeah. uh, i you know i i tweeted that the weather in la was 120 mm-hmm. degrees over the weekend, a record heat wave and then you're seeing these epic wildfires all over the state and the images seem apocalyptic. Someone called it fire porn, where you can just look at the the uh, California wildfire pictures and just uh, have your jaw drop in wonder that it's not a special effect. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah. you know, people ask what, what we can do. I mean, this is a situation that, to me, after the fire is out uh, or after the fire is um, raging, it's too late in the sense that, it's very difficult. I mean, you need to have the right resources and everything, but ideally you'd be controlling the fuel at a much higher level where the, there, these forests have become tinder boxes as California is drying up. Uh, it, it seems impossible, but these wildfires are just gonna get worse.
2: Yeah, so a lot of LA, people don't always realize this piece is like, a lot of LA is, is desert. Right. A lot in part around San Francisco in some places, too. It's it's pretty dry, um, but mainly L.A. Um, and Southern California. To me, this is what seems to happen every year. We're like, oh, man, wildfires are bad. I hope they're not bad this year. And then we, we kind of like there's someone in your mind. But then they come and they're disastrous and we're shocked as if like I feel like we didn't we had a whole year to kind of prepare for this or years and years. We know every year wildfires are wildfires are terrible. Um, and you talked about a lot in the campaign where you would um,
0: quintuple the U.S. Forest Service, forestry
2: budget. Yeah. Yeah. Which is and it's all federal. It's mainly a federal problem, right? Because it's federal parks. Land. They cross state lines. Um, and then some of these places end up a tinderbox and, you know, they're a tinderbox. Like this is where they normally start. Uh, that sort of thing. I, what else? I mean, do you remember some of the things you talked about on the trail about what you would do to fight? and prevent these in the future. A lot of it was preventative, if I recall.
0: Now, uh, again, after there's a wildfire raging, it's harder uh, to put it out. So yeah. you'd want to invest in managing the forests to a higher level. Right now, less than 10% of the national forest is actually getting managed for fire suppression. Uh, so 90% is not. Less than 10%. Yes, you, you would Jesus. need to invest massive resources to properly Manage the tinder boxes that that are forming. Um, these fires are easier to put out earlier rather than later, where you know after they yep. consume enough fuel, they they become uncontrollable. So, in addition to investing in the U.S. Forest Service, I I was hypothesizing that you could do more mm-hmm. in terms of installing heat sensors uh, in various acres of land, and then have some kind of rapid deployment unit that. Uh, descended on the place as soon as you saw that there was a fire breaking out before it got too bad. Now, some people will be like, wow, that sounds expensive. I mean, do you know how much these current wildfires are costing us in terms of uh, not just property damage, but loss of life in many cases? You're looking at billions of dollars over time. So which would you rather spend money on? Some freaking awesome fuel uh, management fire suppression unit with heat sensors and your forests, uh, or watching your communities get consumed by wildfire. Uh, and this is a federal problem <laughs> because like you said, a lot of these lands are federal responsibility. Uh, even California right now is being impacted by land that it doesn't have purview over. So, uh, you know, mm-hmm. this is just another example of our government being asleep at the switch where you look up and be like, oh, another year, another, uh, another series of record-breaking fires and it's like well someone want to do something about that and uh, the the feds We're are so like right well we, we don't really clicks. exist to to adapt we just take last year's budget and then increase or decrease it by five or ten percent and then we everyone just chills out uh, you know it it's very very frustrating if, if i was mm-hmm. in california i'd be raging at the federal government i'm raging at the federal yeah. government anyway
2: my Yeah, you're raising the federal government without being out there. Um, My one of my buddies from high school um, actually became one of the guys that like parachutes out of helicopters and fights wildfires, Um, which is a a dangerous job, but also uh, relatively interesting. I mean, it's cool for sure. Um, But and we're not a big fan of uh, like federal jobs guarantees or or excessive government labor. But this seems like a place where. there's a lot of particularly young men that probably really interested in a job like that, especially if they're unemployed or don't like their current job or, or that kind of thing. Because that's a need that's not going anywhere at this rate. Um, that's where I think, you know, where uh, government resources be wisely spent, in my opinion.
0: Yes. Quintuple the U.S. Forest Service budget and hire the heck out of a bunch of people that would go in and manage the forests so that we don't deal with... Uh, these fires uh, breaking records every year, you know, and you talk about the government and jobs. I mean, the reality is we have millions and millions of Americans who are unemployed right now and underemployed. So we should be investing in anything that makes sense as a job creator. And this one's a no-brainer. Yeah, no-brainer. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now... Seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now.
2: I want to change gears. An uh, interesting story I saw because and I, it, it reminded me of you, but also it hit my hometown, so it, it touched on, So I'm I, I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. I lived in Buffalo for two years when I was little, but I grew up in outside of Hartford in Connecticut. And so Hartford had something. They're supposed to start schools after Labor Day on Tuesday, and the the whole public school system shut down for an extra day um, because of something called ransomware, and someone basically hacked their bus. school bus software um (laughs) and said if you don't ransomware um is what they in this case was a virus that said if you don't pay us xyz in whether it's files or money or crypto or whatever the hell they they off you know whatever the ransom is the virus doesn't go away um and we're gonna keep attacking your crap um and we were joking about this before the show andrew is apparently this was like not a big headline. Like I saw this because I follow some, you know, I check in on my my hometown, my people. Um, but this stuff apparently happens all the time. Like ransomware is actually kind of common, and I for some reason we just shrug, like, oh, don't worry, the government got hijacked today for a day. <laughs> we'll go back to normal tomorrow. Like no one's talking about this uh, at all, and it happens pretty often. Like I. Have you seen this stuff? Like, what are your thoughts on ransomware? Yeah, it it does
0: happen more often than you'd think. Like, it's happened to dozens of communities. And the tough reality is that it's much easier to hack a lot of these systems than it is to somehow secure them, particularly if you're a cash-strapped school district or whatnot. Like, the the last thing you're worried about uh, is uh, investing in being hacker-proof, unfortunately. And then when someone comes and holds your uh, feet over a fire, saying, "Hey, do this or do that," then uh, oftentimes your move is going to be like, "Well, uh, let's pay or let's cancel school or let's." And and so these things are happening around the country, and we're not making enough of it. Uh, I think we're not making um, enough of it because. Uh, we don't have a solution in many of these communities, uh, and I think it erodes public trust even more, public confidence even more, if you know that your kid's school buses software is hackable. It, it, though it, <laughs> it it almost certainly is, yeah. uh, uh, and th- this is one of the the symptoms of of being behind the curve on a government level, uh, where at a minimum, what you'd want to do is you'd want to have like a really concerted task force that's like look anyone who does something like this to hartford or a town like we're going to investigate the heck out of you and come get you wherever you are whether you know whether you're in the right. country or not uh, but right now i i feel like these these sorts of schemes uh, are getting swept under the rug uh, because people don't have um, confidence that we can fix it
2: yeah i mean their mayor did say they invested in new cybersecurity technology and that that shortened they basically stopped this didn't have to pay a ransom and only lasted a day um so it's better than i guess what it could have been i wonder if
0: yeah sometimes they have to pay yeah
2: yeah you can't expect every city to be extremely tech savvy given the type of country we have but i wonder if the federal government could have a list of approved vendors or approved providers or have an and and an internal service as well that we are passionate about and, and hold those organizations accountable um to offer the states. Um, I don't know. Um, to me, you joke that we are in a third world country because like, oh yeah, government hacked today. Don't worry about it. Like that's where, that's the future we want to avoid um, if we can, <laughs> being Venezuela. I don't know. Uh, just, uh, I felt bad for Hartford. I don't think it's the mayor's fault. Um, yeah, and that would but, be a tough
0: thing too, being an elected official and then being like, you know, what what the heck? Like I was supposed to be like, you know, the tech expert here in you know yeah, he my, gets blamed my, for my it, towel. right or she
2: gets blamed for it <laughs>
0: yeah so yeah. Th- like that that strikes me as unfair um, but in our country today, I would it would be I would probably would fall on that person to somehow shoulder the blame
2: of course yeah
0: yeah th- th- there I mean th- there are things that we could do along the lines of what you're that you're describing but it, it requires like a real overhaul Zach because th- a lot of these public entities are using systems from a long time ago like you know you just need a massive Mm -hmm. modernization push uh here in the u.s because some of the more modern systems um are more resistant and resilient
2: oh man all right on more positive news andrew um a couple things one um football is sunday um you're a bigger nba fan so you're probably having more fun but i am ecstatic i think the bills are winning the afc east this year and Josh Allen's contending for MVP. So those of you listening who care, don't care, it doesn't matter. You heard it here first. Josh Allen is going to have a fantastic year and the Bills will win the AFC. It's our year, baby. I'm pumped. And my other prediction is that I think the because of COVID, the teams with like culture and let's call it like um, consistent head coaching and consistent ownership and management will outperform. So your Ravens, your Steelers, your Seahawks, the Bills have been pretty good past couple years, your Niners. I think they're going to outperform. Thoughts on the season? Any predictions? Any hot takes you want to make, man? What do you uh, your NBA takes? People yell used to yell at me on the trail because they were bad. Um, maybe you'll redeem yourself with football. I don't know. Well, <laughs> certainly,
0: my football takes will be uh, almost uniformly poor. <laughs> so, uh, so certainly don't want um, to to give anyone any bad suggestions. Though it does seem like the Bills. Yeah, have no one's shot. betting on you, stuff, I don't think that's good. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the, you know, I mean the the Patriots if they manage to win
2: post Brady, uh then everyone else should just give up. i <laughs> you know I'm gonna like that. If the Be- if the Pats go to the Super Bowl again or are contenders this year, I'm out. Dude, I can't do it. The, they lost that, so many players. If that happens, the Brady.
0: the Bills, the Jets, and the Dolphins should all uh come together and uh um just have some kind of ceremony
2: where they like, submit to the Patriots. <laughs> like, I, I would be for that, man. Because I think you could... Because then you'd actually say, like, you could put the best team that the Jets, Dolphins, and Bills could put together, and we'd probably still lose. And oh, that, 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 that was actually um, one of
0: the jokes. about where It was like, actually, you should have all three teams merge. Make it, like, a two-team division. Uh, and it would be like you consolidate <laughs> every other AFC East team. You make, like, a Voltron oh, super team. Uh, it's so painful. Oh, but your, the, your bills have a good <laughs> shot. Um, you know, I mean, bills, b-
2: bills are good this year. Um, and hanging out with you too. I started knows, to root man, for the definitely. bills
0: because you know, if you're around someone, uh, who, who's rooting as hard as you were, then, you know, like you naturally start rooting for them too.
2: Well, thanks, man. I, uh, I tend to make everybody else's lives miserable when the bills lose. So a lot of the staff would root for the bills for their own self-interest. Um, to you know, because that being a better mo- if the bills win, people ask for budget requests. That's when they ask for them on the campaign trail. Um, That's funny. You have being great. They're smart. Uh, way That's manage, smart. Way to manage, way to manage up team. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Team manage up great. I'm you know, like putty in their hands. Um, most importantly, Andrew, Unagi scooter giveaway. Yes, we did it. We're doing, we're giving away three of them, Andrew, um, and we're going to do one on this episode. Did you know that? I don't know if I told you that, surprise. You knew we were giving away though. I,
0: I love these scooters and I love giving them away because I know whoever gets it's gonna be so happy. <laughs> it's just gonna make their like uh, life better to have this thing. Um, yeah, you know, it's like a 21st century magic carpet. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't say enough about how
2: much fun these things are. Today's winner, the first Unagi scooter, um, is drum roll the first winner is caroline Garrido. uh it's caroline underscore g-a-r-r-i-d-o y'all can follow her and congratulate her if you want on instagram um caroline we will reach out to you congratulations you're gonna love this thing oh my gosh i love this thing i love it so much um and you know andrew does if i wanted to bore people i would just post videos of you and me just riding the scooter all day because that happens every day (laughs) i don't know um so here's the deal um if you want a scooter we're going to be announcing winners on our instagram so that's at andrew yang and at zach grauman on instagram the next way to win will be announced shortly um probably on our next monday episode um Regardless, though, we love unagi scooters. We love giving them away. We love giving shit away on this show. Regardless, Andrew, um, whether it's money, unagi scooters, football advice, what else do you give away? Mainly Context money. On Vince I mean, humanity forwards
0: up to eight million dollars and counting uh, plus. So thank you to everyone who supported and continues to support so our, our efforts because uh, there's just a lot of need, a lot of pain, and so being able to do something about it is a real gift and privilege. Uh, so thank you um but yeah
2: we love giving stuff away and and that includes fun electric scooters that's true um and i know people prefer money but um we'll do money and we'll do scooters and we'll we'll do more too um so our next guest is he's such a badass i'm gonna butcher his name um but not out of um maybe it's out of ignorance but it's, it has nothing to do with how much i love him because i love this guy um how do i pronounce his name it's Kamel nanjiani Kamel nanjiani he's badass
0: so cool plus he got super ripped for a marvel movie <laughs> so he's like at this point now <laughs> he's super smart super funny and super ripped <laughs> and and he's yeah. been giving guidance to people on how to manage their mental health and uh the well-being during the the pandemic uh, i'm a big fan of his too silicon valley big sick Everything he does, he elevates. uh, uh, And I I can't wait to talk to him.
2: There's a certain element of um, elevating your acting career from like comedian to action hero, which the steps in between include a shirtless GQ magazine cover where you're ripped. Like um, Jim from The Office, John Krasinski did this. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples. Um, But that... I think that um, or the guy who placed the, the um, what's his name in who's Darth Vader in Star Wars or not Darth Vader. Um, who's the bad guy in the new Star Wars movies? You know what I'm talking about.
0: Adam Driver, Kylo um, Ren.
2: Adam Driver. Yes. Same thing. I don't know if he's been completely shirtless, but definitely more jacked. I think it's a right of patches, passage. Here's a thought, Andrew. Between now and the next office you run for. We get you jacked. Evelyn would like this. We get you jacked like you were in like high school, college, and we do. Uh, we announce as a shirtless cover of GQ, or you can pick the magazine.
0: Uh, I I feel like that would uh, probably not help my seriousness factor. <laughs> no, you don't think. <laughs> but so? but it, it, it but it would <laughs> but it would help my prospects of being cast in a Marvel
2: movie. So you know there'd be like a like a, a, a cost benefit. And you just had like a Yang Gang tattoo on the left pec, like something badass, but like, not like a joke Yang Gang, like a, I don't know, like blood or awesomeness. I don't know. Um, There's some fans listening to this that I think are loving this visual that I think it's hilarious. Uh, Sorry, sorry you're not as excited about it as I am, but I think (laughs) I'm cracking up. Uh, This is one way to launch a new office run. (laughs) Okay, I'm done, man, I'm done. Tune in guys. Kamail, right after this break.
0: This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing, you don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your Internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. I am thrilled to welcome to Yang Speaks, uh, what what has he not done, actor, comedian, screenwriter, uh, visionary, philosophy and comp sci graduate of the, (laughs) Kamal Nagiani. Kamal, welcome to Yang Speaks, thank you for doing this.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, thank you.
0: Well, that and now I feel like you're almost—you're the closest thing our society has to a superhero right now because we all know you're super ripped. <laughs> so you had to go <laughs> through like—you had to go through the Hollywood training crucible, where yeah, yeah. the the taskmasters at Disney assigned you a dietitian and trainers and. Uh, The whole nine yards for the regiment uh and you know it cracked me and my wife up because we're like imagine your husband just coming home and being like hey for my job i now have to become uh, essentially a real life superhero
1: yeah well first of all i want to say you know uh they did get me all those uh people they gave me the infrastructure to do it disney but they put no pressure on me they were like if you want to do this you can but seriously you don't have to and i was like oh i'm gonna do it the most possible. Um, <laughs> and I really, Emily was like, you know, they don't want you to do this. You're doing this because you want to do it. I'm like, yeah, I've always wanted to like, I've always wanted to do this. And I just haven't had like the time or the determination to really like see, see it through. So it was it was kind of awesome to do. It was also a real nightmare and a real pain. And it continues to be.
0: So that's one of the questions I had is that, so you show up, you're ripped, you get footage uh, of you for this movie, The Eternals. And then I'm thinking to myself, does he have to stay ripped until this thing wraps? (laughs) And what the heck is that?
1: Yeah, well, you know, for me, I I have tried to stay in shape uh, since then in the same way you kind of, my goal was, until the movie comes out, when you go and do the interviews, I didn't want to look like radically different on the red carpet than I do in the movie. Uh, so that was my goal. And now, you know, the release date for the movie got delayed. So I have to, I have to keep at it a little bit longer, but it's interesting. You brought up my wife cause she does, she's still a little surprised by it every now and then she like, like hug me and she would just be like, you just feel so different. And, and, and I feel the most different when I'm in bed, trying to like turn, like sleep on my side. I can feel it's like trying to steer a ship. like, I'm not used to doing that movement yet. I, I thought you were going to say you have less
0: padding <laughs> than you used to, it's oh, like you turn oh, on your side and sh- you're like, oh, it's more muscle there.
1: There used to be some cushion. But it really is less padding. It's interesting the ways that your body the body feels different. Um, I was gonna say something, but I feel like that's that's a little bit uh, inappropriate, so I'll leave it.
0: Oh, you can get as inappropriate as you want, man. It's a podcast. One of the things I. Um, I had in mind when I was running for president was if it's a podcast, it doesn't matter. <laughs> if it's, <a> podcast, <laughs> it's like no one will yeah. ever see this and it's just going to disappear into the Internet. Whereas, you know, if it was like cable news appearance and all of a sudden it was very, very serious stuff. Uh, so that the stuff that and you might have gone into this in a, in a setting that I have not seen. But the thing that fascinates me about you is your origin story, because I have no fucking clue how a guy would come uh, from. Pakistan here for college, study computer science and philosophy at Grinnell, which is someplace I know. I campaign there. And and then some somehow wind up like a TV star, movie star. Um, when you have really educated parents, I have educated parents too, and my parents would not have had any Thing to do with me if i just disappeared for a while it was like i'm going to, to do the do comedy uh you know they didn't like it very much when i said politics which is a pretty serious thing <laughs> <laughs> i think
1: so I, yeah if i was running for president my parents would have a tough reaction yeah my, mine
0: were not thrilled either but the the thing that <laughs> is this mystery to me is uh, so i i can see your background through college that stuff makes sense to me and I don't know if you remember this, but you and I met briefly at the Global Entrepreneurship Summit in Silicon Valley. Uh, we were both in line to get pre- pictures with uh, President Obama. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. You, you and the cast of Silicon Valley did the skit ahead of time, and then we were just like chilling in line together. Do
1: you remember that? I, re- I do remember that. And it took us over two years to get that picture because they had to vet everyone. That was a long ass
0: line, and I gotta say, Kamal, not to be like, not to sound cocky, or whatever, but like I had a picture with him from like, you know, like a couple months earlier. So <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why am I doing this again? I've already seen
1: this movie. I know how it ends.
0: Yeah, it ends with uh, you know me shaking uh, Obama's hand and him talking about how awesome I am. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's uh, he's he was very. That was the most I've talked to him. He was very charming, funny, and. I was actually supposed to have dinner with him at one point. Um, at, I think it was towards the end of last year. And then I had to be out of the country and I couldn't do it and I was very, very disappointed. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's the only time I've met him.
0: Well, so to me, there's like this massive fog of mystery between Kamail, the recent college graduate. And then by the time I saw you and the world saw you, you were a TV star. Uh, in Silicon Valley was when I think most of the world met you. Uh, and so I know you've, you've done the clubs, you've done the entire circuit. Um, like, tell us about that time, because that time just strikes me as such a ringer. Like, the fact that you flung yourself into that ringer after Grinnell.
1: Man, I'll tell you, starting stand-up comedy uh, is an absolute ringer. It really, really is. It's, it's, it's difficult. And I started, honestly, I started in, uh, I started like August 2001 is when I started doing stand up comedy. So if you remember your history, then it's 9-11 happens that year. And I continue doing stand up comedy, looking like me, sounding like me, with my name, getting up on stage in front of drunk people trying to tell jokes. So I always have this thing where like, you know, sometimes people will troll me on Twitter and then they'll be like, are your feelings hurt? And I'm like, <laughs> And Whatever it t- takes to hurt my feelings, you don't got it. I promise. I've I've, <laughs> been through, I've been through some of the worst situations. So basically how it works is I, I, I graduated college in computer science and philosophy. One of those is practical to get you a job and the other one is not as practical. The issue was, you know, I I found philosophy very interesting and I was very engaged and I felt like I was good at it. Like I, I could make persuasive arguments, I was good at writing papers, I really enjoyed it. Computer science, I always felt like I missed one class somewhere and just like never caught up. I was like not good at it, managed to get a job in computer science, but never really felt engaged, never felt like it was for me. And and I'd sort of at that point really fallen in love with, with stand-up comedy, just watching stand-up comedy. So I was like, I have to try this thing. Like it would hurt too much to not try it. And how it works is, you know, so I moved to Chicago for a job, but I also knew that Chicago's where like a lot of comedy legends had come from, you know, Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert, Bill Murray, like all these big people, Tina Fey. So I moved there and you basically look through the newspaper see where the open mics are and you just go and put your name on a list and then you get up on stage and you get five minutes in front of in front of people you don't know and that's kind of how you get started and you know the first few years i i my my visa was tied to my work so i couldn't actually make money doing stand so all i could do was open mics and that's kind of what you do you just from 2001 to 2007 i just did open mics over and over in front of drunk people in Chicago. And then I got, you know, I got pretty lucky over and over and over and over. It was right place, right time, over and over, you know. Uh, so, 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 so the reason that I'm here, a lot of it is due, to, is due to luck. And I feel extremely grateful. I always say, of all the parallel universes, this is the only one <laughs> where I'm here talking to you.
0: This is the simulation where
1: you become a movie star. <laughs> this is it man. in every other one I, I I got nothing going on. so so I feel I feel very, very grateful and I feel very, very, very fortunate. It was one of those, you know where you you're doing comedy. So I moved to New York in two thousand seven with my wife Emily, and we to, to like sort of pursue comedy and I just ended up having a good set in front of somebody who then later got me a job, and then that job led to another job, led to another job, led to another job. So it was all these small steps leading to, uh, leading to the career I have now. Um, but, but at each point there was like um, serendipity, you know, I just like the right person saw me at just the right time or, or, or things like that. And then all sort of fingers crossed, you know, I, I know this can go away at any second.
0: Well, there's a big gulf there because you're uh, on a visa and you have a job where you're working with computers and then you're showing up to open mics and don't make a dime and just, you know, get pelted with occasional abuse and you get better at your craft. So then when do you actually switch from making a living from sitting in front of a computer screen to making a living off of comedy? And then how does the the visa work? Like when does the visa actually start uh, becoming something you can apply for for being a creative
1: so this is how it works works for me what you have to do is get heckled by a beautiful american woman at a show fall in love with her have her fall in love with you marry her and you get a green card so that's how it works for me. right place right time man i'm telling you <laughs> again um so that's how it worked for me. You know, if I if I getting getting a creative visa and I know friends who've gotten it, is very, very tricky because you basically have to prove that nobody else who's American can do this job and what we do is so amorphous and vague and and hard to articulate anyway. But but how it worked for us was so we met in two thousand six. I was still on my I was on my second H one B visa, which I, I think that there's still a hold on H1B visas so so I really really relate with that issue. I was on my second and final H1B visa. Met Emily, we fell in love as my visa was running out. We were like wow. we should we should get married and and it did not feel like a practical decision. It was a decision made out of out of love. We knew already at that point. It We'd been nice. through some Camille loves his wife, <laughs> <laughs> and she says she loves me. Uh, <laughs> you heard it here first. And Yang speaks. Um, so we basically got married. I applied for a green card. Got the green card. You do the whole interview. You know where there's a woman who's like, we had a woman who was trying to like trick us and make sure that that our love was real. What uh, color is her toothbrush? <laughs> <laughs> I mean. <laughs> It's that kind of stuff, it really is. What helped us is, you know, we had, um, so we did our own, we just basically stood in line at City Hall and got married. And then when we went to meet my parents, you know, when her and I went to meet my parents, we were already married, we'd been married for two weeks. And even though Emily's not the person that they had imagined in their heads, I mean, I give them all the credit in the world, they fully accepted her and they threw a traditional Pakistani wedding and they had a Pakistani videographer there. And this guy made a DVD of our wedding. That is the cheesiest fucking thing you've ever seen. It starts with a picture of the guy actually editing on his thing. So when, you put, when I put in my wedding DVD, the first thing is this guy editing and the song, do you remember that song, I um, will be your hero, baby? Of course, who does yeah. not know that song? It's Enrique Iglesias. Song, I will
0: take away Enrique your English. pain.
1: Yeah, it's a good song. But I don't know if you wanted playing on a loop over your wet- wedding video over and over and over. So we we took that with us, you know, we just had enough like evidence that obviously we weren't lying. And then as soon as we got married, showed them the video, you're like, check this out. And then the person's like, well, like, make this up. She's like, OK, I guess you get a green card. Uh, that allowed me to quit my quit my job we decided to just like move to new york with savings and no money which was a huge mistake and she's a therapist so she basically was like i will get a job and support you you can follow your dream and she just believed in me man i don't know I don't know why. I think even her friends and family were like, "He's he's a great guy, but what are you doing?"
0: <laughs> he's a great guy, but what are you doing? That's like the. There's yeah. definitely the the butt after that. Well, I, I have a. Uh, you know, like at least a sense that I understand that era from The Big Sick, as I'm sure a lot of people who are watching and listening to this, if you haven't seen The Big Sick, you need to see it. It's a brilliant and touching and poignant movie, um, but it's somewhat autobiographical in terms of uh, uh, your relationship with Emily uh, and some of that era, like you're in clubs performing, like you tell some of the jokes yeah. that I imagine you might have told in real life. Um yeah. that that kind of belief that that is profound where someone sees something in you that maybe you're not even sure of all of the time because you know when you're putting yourself out there as a creative uh, it's hard to believe in even yourself all the time,
1: yeah, especially because you know you just know the numbers you know I mean you don't know specifically the numbers, but you know that what you're going for is so rare and so hard to achieve, and so many things have to line up exactly perfectly and You know, Emily still says that she never doubted that, that I would be, I don't know what, what she was thinking, what would happen, but she never doubted that I would have some level of success um, in this industry. You know, it's the same. We, we sort of have that for each other. I think like I believe in her more than sometimes she believes in herself and vice versa. Um, so I am, you know, honestly, if, if it wasn't for her, I would definitely, definitely not be here right now. So she, she basically supported me for a year and a half while I did open mics in New York. I sort of had to start over there and then I sort of got a job like opening for a comedy, uh, for a comedy tour. Then I got a job writing for a TV show and then that show gave me a job acting. So it was all like these tiny little steps, but it all happened because Emily, took a job and supported me for a year.
0: Emily seems like a creative powerhouse in her own right. And anyone who wants to listen to the two of you, you have a podcast, Staying In, uh, that is kind of quarantine themed as people might be able to tell. <laughs> and it's, it's about trying to stay stable and mentally healthy during a time when uh, we're spending a lot of time indoors with, with ourselves or our significant others. Uh, and it's honest, it's funny, uh, you know, like the the two of you seem like you enhance each other creatively is the sense one gets from the outside.
1: Yeah, we, we certainly enhance each other creatively, and I like to think personally as well. I feel like we both think that we got the better end of the deal. I think she thinks that. I definitely think that. So it's definitely a little bit greater than the sum of some of our parts. You know, it's um, even though we obviously have our issues, everyone does. But I feel like in quarantine specifically, because, you know, you mentioned the big sick. So you might know Emily's in a high risk group for this virus. Right. So we had to lock down before most people locked down. And we're still very, very strict about it. Um, It's just too scary. We really... We haven't seen anybody. We only leave the house at night and go for a walk when there aren't people around and stuff like that. So, in this time, just really spending time with only each other, um, it has strengthened our relationship and it has made our uh, communication a lot better. I feel like you know, it's it's sometimes. It's, it, it can be easy to take your partner for granted and not ask them, like, how are you feeling? How's your day going? How are you doing this week? that Just that basic kind of stuff, you know, it can be easy to go on autopilot with that. And I think quarantine has shown us that those conversations, just being like, how are you feeling, is very, very, it's just it's just essential. And it's also it's me asking her how she's feeling gives me more intentionality in the way I approach my life during this, too, because, uh, you know, all we've literally all all we have is each other right now. Well,
0: before we move on to to another topic, we need to expand H-1B visas uh, in the United States. It it, it really makes no sense, our our current system. And I have friends who have gone through versions of it. uh, And the fact is, these companies, have to jump through a million hoops to say, look, only this person can do this job. I can't find an American to do this job. Uh, But in real life, the choice is between them hiring those folks and having them live and work in the United States or them hiring them in another country. And to, to me, which would you prefer if you were us, them hiring hundreds of people and having them here in the U.S., where they end up creating value and uh, being massive value generators, or that company opening an office in Pakistan, or India, or uh, Eastern Europe, or yeah. wherever it is. Like, to me, that's a very easy call. Uh, and you yeah. let the, you let them hire who they want here in the United States, and then you get that value natively. Uh, every knowledge worker ends up uh, supporting multiple workers in other aspects of the economy, which is pretty obvious if you think about it, but if if you you get hired by this firm and you're working as a programmer or whatnot, you're gonna end up pumping a lot of money for the takeout restaurant, for the landlord, the dry cleaner, the cleaning service, the dog walker, like you name it. it. It all ends up just circulating back through our economy as opposed to someone else's economy.
1: Oh, yeah. As you said, it's, it's just value add. The other thing is, there's this sense, you know, they're talking about immigration reform. There's this sense that the gates are wide open, that anybody can come to America. Nothing could be further from the truth. As a kid in Pakistan, with my family, just trying to get a visit visa to America to come visit uh, my, my sister's brother, it's almost impossible. It, it's so hard just to get a visit visa, especially from a place like Pakistan. Getting a, when, an H-1B visa, as you said, companies have to jump through a lot of hoops. So, so there's this idea that anybody can just move in and it's easy. It is not easy. It's a very difficult process. And there's a lot of vetting that happens. Just the thought that you might have had to...
0: Leave the the states if you had not fallen in love with Emily, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm sure is like making everyone think it's like, wow, I can't imagine uh, an American cultural landscape without Camille. <laughs> honestly, like over the last. Oh, really? You
1: can? Well, that's well, that's very flattering. <laughs> I don't think it's true, but I feel you know. Obviously, this is my country. This is my home, and the idea that a big, let's face it, a big chunk of this country does not see me as American and does not accept me as American, even though I know it's not, the problem is not with me, the problem is with them, it's still a little heartbreaking to me and it's still, it still gets to me, you know, uh, the fact that, what is it, 44 percent of the country probably wouldn't see me as, as belonging here.
0: I feel like you might be an exception, my friend. Where if they've seen you in something, then all of a sudden uh, you become familiar to them in a way that um, that that might hopefully uh, engender uh, you know some positivity. I, I feel like you'd get that if you went to a lot of places. And when you were performing your comedy, I feel like you might know this country in a way that a lot of people don't because comedians head to small towns and medium sized cities and work like a a club where like you said like you know a few dozen drunk people show up and you're there and you're there with a bunch of other comics and uh you end up staying uh, overnight in places that a lot of americans will never see and never visit did you have that experience as a comedian or were you more exclusively in chicago and new york
1: um, I certainly had that experience. Not as much. I couldn't do it in Chicago because I couldn't make money. So I would go sometimes do those shows just to do them. But certainly in New York, I have done tours of tiny, tiny towns. And, you know, I grew up in a really big city. I grew up in Karachi, which is like 20 million people. I I lived in Chicago. I lived in, lived in New York. So I was always very like metropolitan. Going to these small towns was really very eye-opening because I'll be honest, you know, before I went to them, I was a little bit, I thought, oh, I, I I, don't see the appeal. Like if I lived there, I would move out. But then going there, you do a show in a tiny town. I did this show, I'm thinking of this specific one. I, I did a show in a tiny town in Ohio. Then afterwards, everybody went to a bar and all the people from the show went to the bar. And I was kind of hanging out and talking to these people who'd sort of grown up there. And some of them had been like best friends with each other since the second grade, you know? Um, and I thought that that was really beautiful. And even though a lot of these people may not agree with me politically now, I really, it, I realized that uh, as, as trite as this sounds, we all truly have a lot more in common than we don't. I know sometimes it's, that gets obscured by, by um but just the conversation and, and sort of the screaming at each other. But uh, I, I, it, it made me feel ultimately optimistic about about where we're headed in this grand I, experiment. I
0: genuinely think comedians uh, could be the great unifying force <laughs> of our society. In part because of, of those experiences that so many of you have had. That's a lot of
1: pressure to put on a bunch of drunks and drug addicts, dude.
0: just in uh, um, well one place that feels very very uplifting and I'd urge you to try and get there though I guess it'd be far field for for you uh, and you know then you're you know you're probably not going to you know break isolation Uh, but Dave Chappelle has uh, has a cornfield near his house and he's been doing live comedy shows there with uh, comedians who just come and go essentially I think that their nickname for it was Chappelle summer camp so yeah it it actually takes some of the ingredients you're describing where it's a very small town. (laughs) People are discovering, it's essentially like a field of dreams of comedy. The whole thing blows your mind. Like you go there and because it's a cornfield, everyone's spread out and it's very socially distanced. And you're just like, what am I seeing? I'm seeing like some of the best comedians uh, in the world in this cornfield. Uh, And it felt quintessentially American in part because of the backdrop. It's like just, fields of corn in the summer (laughs) there's a gazebo (laughs) anyway so um but but the comedians I, i talk to because they interact with people in the same way you do it's like look we all have a lot in common we all want the same things uh and there are these political discussions that are trying to pit us against each other in a way that i don't think would apply if we were just sitting across a kitchen table from each other or if we were in the same bar at the same night Like then you would just end up bonding over your common humanity uh, instead of, you know, typing some nasty comment in (laughs) in Twitter or Facebook or 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 what have you. Um, So I'm I'm serious that I feel like uh, comedians are having a different conversation with Americans uh, than politicians, for sure, like a better conversation in, in many respects
1: i think that's right i think that's right um what you said about you know i one of my best friends in the world is indian people always like a pakistani and indian and it's like yeah those lines don't exist when you're like sitting next to someone or eating with them you know i always find like if you look at the big sig there's a lot of eating scenes that happen whenever people uh whenever walls come down and people connect and i really feel like you know if, if if the world could if I could bring some of these people in and, and feed them Pakistani food, I don't think they could think of that place in the way that they think of it right now because cause our food's too good.
0: Yes, well said. Kamal's effort will be like Pakistani restaurants across the country, letting people know that this place is too delicious to dislike. <laughs> That's right. I mean, that is what we are. We're too delicious to dislike. That, that should be on our flag. That, that, I mean, that's a pretty good tagline. Uh, comedians and chefs bringing the world together. I don't I don't mind it. Uh, so when you talk about the politics of this moment, so you've got a green card. Um, are you a citizen now or, or are you still trafficking? And I am a citizen up? now. Oh, so you have the freaking full fan. rights and privileges. You took the test. Was the test as hard as they say?
1: No, the test was pretty easy. Um, in fact, like I don't know how much I could say because I don't. Because I read something where they were like, "Oh, we can start revoking citizenships and all the shit." Oh,
2: no. so you're don't. you're in for good. Don't it's worry, so man. Fun.
1: You can spill the beans. Nothing's gonna happen. It's <laughs> irreversible. I I went in and I sat with this guy and I was really nervous. And he was an Asian. He was an Asian guy, very nice. And uh, right from the beginning, he was like, he asked me a couple questions, and then he saw I was nervous, and he was like don't be nervous. You're going to pass. Don't worry about this. And I just thought it was really, really sweet. Like he didn't have to do that. He, he didn't have to put me at ease. You know, he didn't have to make me feel better. The person who interviewed us for the green card certainly didn't do that. She was trying to get us, she was trying to get us to contradict ourselves. And, and, you know, she was like, she was certainly like aggressive. Uh, but this guy was was super nice. So that that, that test wasn't it was not that hard, no. So yeah, I'm here for good. Can't get rid of me.
0: Yeah, look at this, full rights and privileges. So, <laughs> so, and you know, you you're paying oodles in taxes, which will make some people very happy. Yeah,
1: California, it's a, it's a great percentage.
0: Uh. So you and I connected in part because there was uh, an Asian American political event. We're trying to rally folks in the community. Um, Do you have a different perspective on what's going on politically as a result of the fact that you had to essentially fight to stay in this country, you become a citizen, uh, and then now you are, in my mind, one of the most prominent Pakistani American figures, which and I'm, I can relate to aspects of this because, you know, there aren't that many like Asian American,
1: um, uh, presidential candidates. <laughs> <laughs> no, not not that many. Let me see how many I can think of. Yeah. There's
0: Andrew Yang. and Um, so, uh, I feel like you became a citizen just as our country started to really, um, turn against each other or, or feel like it's getting torn apart. Um, And I take it that you're with, so you know about me, like I've endorsed Joe and Kamala. Like, uh, you know, I'm trying to get folks to just vote, 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 because I I feel like the more people that vote, uh, the better off we're going to be. Uh, But I feel like you have a different perspective because you're like a kind of a recently minted American. (laughs) You're Mm -hmm. you're, you're just like, you had to fight to get it. And then here we are at this political moment where it, it feels like there's a ton at stake Uh, in November Mm
1: -hmm. yeah you know I always feel like obviously uh, I I relate to immigration issues very intimately and this the demonization of immigrants you remember when they were talking about the caravan from Mexico and stuff I it, it never first of all I find it obviously moral and immoral and unethical but on top of that it's also extremely illogical because you know you were born here. We had to like fight to come here. We chose America as our home. We gave up our lives, you know. We we put everything on the line to choose to choose like better lives for ourselves and our families. I mean, what's more American than that, right? The pursuit of life, what is it? Life, liberty, happiness, whatever it is, I don't remember from the citizenship
0: Somewhere from the test. Test was too that long was, ago.
1: <laughs> that was a long time ago. But uh, to me, that should be something that's commended. I mean, these people are patriotic. They chose America. They weren't just born here. So so I find that I've, I, I, it just never makes sense to me that people are able to demonize immigrants so easily. And yeah, obviously this election is very, very important. You know, my parents moved here after I did. My parents have been here now maybe uh, like 12 years or so. Um, and they moved from Karachi. And they they landed here and they love. America. You know, they were like, Oh my God, things are like much easier here. They felt really accepted. They just, my mom was like seeing her that happy and that comfortable. It just brought so much joy to me. And then in the last few years, it's been very difficult for her. You know, her relationship to America has changed and the way she looks, the way she sees America has changed. Um, now when I talk to her, uh, all she does is really talk about politics and how scared she is and she says they don't want us here i'm like no ma this is like there's a certain percentage of people this is not how it is things can turn very quickly and she was like she said something that really broke my heart she's like we already we already left pakistan where where do we go from here? Where will we go when we have to leave here? That's I was like, so heartbreaking. Not
0: gonna, not have to. You know, she's been here for twelve yeah. years, and she's happy for the first ten years, and then the last two years, she's like, "Wait a minute! Like, I'm not sure if this place actually uh, wants people like me."
1: Yeah, it's been it's been really, really, really devastating, you know. And I and I sort of tell her this is something that, you know, this is the the difficult balance, right? Like, how do you stay engaged and and up on the news? and still keep your wits about you like how do you keep your mental health in check while the world is seems to be falling apart so so i tell her i'm like you know you, you know how you're going to vote you know how your friends are going to vote don't watch the news all day every day i don't think our brains are designed to really take that much stimulus over and over and over this is how i feel about twitter even though i am on it more than i should be if you look at your replies i bet you if you look at your replies even if they're positive it's really overwhelming i don't think we're supposed to get that much information that much communication that much feedback from that many people at a, in like such a short period of period of time you don't think that was happening British in the French. state of
0: nature where you say something on the campfire and then all of a sudden, <laughs> like hundreds of people start,
1: start belting you with, uh, with their opinion? Yeah, people are quote t- tweeting you to dunk on you. No, that did not happen. This is all completely new. So that's what I tell her. I'm like, Ma, there's too much news right now. Too much is going on. I have to I have to take breaks very, very consistently. And so that's that's what I try and tell her. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot wrapped up in this election for all of us and, and specifically for me, because I just keep thinking of my mom, you know, sometimes I wish I lived in a different state so my vote could actually count more.
0: Well, you can make a huge difference uh, trying to move votes in swing districts around the country. Um, and I agree with you about there being an optimal amount of news and social media to consume in a given day. Uh, I've been, so I, I'm on CNN uh, and CNN has 24 hours of news. Uh, but I grew up in a time when there was approximately 30 minutes of news. <laughs> when, when, when it was like, just, just, and here's your nightly news, and we'll do it again, like the local version and, and whatnot. And I'm convinced that there is an optimal amount of news that's significantly less than 24 hours, uh, because, yeah. the, because the, the, the fact is, if, if I have hours of bandwidth of content to... Phil, then I'll talk about something, you know, and and I'll try to make it interesting, uh, and yeah. I'll gin up emotional responses to whatever the heck I'm talking about, uh, and, and that that's a and social media is that compounded, uh, and you're right that's that right. So, so I'm I'm very much on Twitter, um, and it was part of my presidential campaign, so it was very, yeah. uh, it was very uh, high utility, uh, and it continues to be high utility because I feel like it's my responsibility. And I feel, I think you you and Emily clearly feel similarly where it's my responsibility to try and put some positive sentiments or ideas uh, out there because people kind of turn to me for a sense of uplift. And I, you know, I'm, I'm very touched by that and I, I wanna be that. Uh, and, and, you know, and and, and so it's, it's like a function of uh, who I am now and part of my professional role. Um, but it, occasionally someone in my Twitter feed will be like, oh, I'm, I'm trying to get off Twitter. I'm like, go. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah,
1: <laughs> leave. Exactly. I, I, I After this election, I'm really going to like take a step back from Twitter. I, I've certainly done that. As you see, I'm more active now than I was a couple months ago. And that was by design. You know, I was like, as we get closer to the election, I'll see if. If I can use my platform for any good, maybe I'm just fooling myself. But at least, at least you know the attempt is there. I can like look myself and say, well, I, I did something. You know, no matter no matter what happens. Um, but I, I think you're right. It is high value. I got on Twitter because it helped my touring tremendously. You know, you when you would go to like, before before people know your name, if you're going to a small town um usually you do like radio shows and stuff and you're sort of getting a weird smattering of people who've heard you who've heard you on that radio show but but if it's twitter that's a very targeted thing that's a self-selected audience right those are the people who want to hear from you so i started on it because um because touring i had, i didn't have to do like 6am radio shows with like douchebags anymore you know um and and so that was that was very helpful and what you said about people looking to you for for uplift and positivity i think that that's that's very very important and that's an essential service i was emily and i have talked about this you know in a time like this um as people who like make stuff i think there are two ways you can go right you can like fight against something or you can fight for something and i think I think both are very valid. I think fighting against stuff is is very valid. I think that there are beautiful pieces of art that have come from cynicism and anger um, and, and negativity, like beautiful pieces of art, and I find them essential. I think our role is to fight for something. That's just, I think, how our personalities are. That's how our brains work. That's that's how we see the world. Both Emily and I are, by nature, very optimistic people, and we're, we're generally very... Pretty positive people, um, and so so that's what we sort of decided. We try and do stuff that that fights for the positive rather than fighting against the negative, which I do think is is still a uh, is it's a it's a very very valid battle. We have this show on Apple TV Plus called Little America, that's a show that we created. That's an anthology show, so every every episode is completely different, and then an anthology show based on True stories of immigrants to America, and 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 that's the kind of stuff we want to do. You know, it just sort of these, these are like very small stories. Some are some are sad, some are happy, some are funny. They're all some are weird and quirky, some are like exciting and thrilling. Uh, one's like a sports movie, you know. So so that's that's what we sort of decided we wanted to do. Is we we want to put stuff out that conveys our point of view in a way that hopefully makes people feel a little less lonely and a little more optimistic.
0: Well, that's what I hoped my presidential campaign would be, Kamal. is that be for something, present a vision that people can get excited about. Because one of the frustrations I have is that in politics, a lot of people will just point out the problem and then being like, we should really think about what to do about that. And they just move on. It's like, well, I'm kind of sure uh, that we should actually put something on the table uh, and so when I started my campaign and, you know, I was for universal basic income, still am, and saying, hey, we should give everyone $1,000 a month. Like people were uh, treating it like, ha ha, like that's impossible, that, that, you know, can't happen. And then now fast forward, not that long uh, afterwards, 55% of Americans are on board and something like 75% of Americans are for cash relief. Uh, and a lot of it's that you present this positive vision. You say, look, like, you know, I- I'm with you in that I'm naturally uh Optimistic and constructive. It was funny too, is that when I was running, people presented me as like the doomer candidate because I was talking about how AI is going to take the jobs and you know the the, the self-driving trucks are going to lead the truck. I mean, the, like,
1: you got to have that conversation too. Yeah,
0: yeah. But I, and so it was funny is that people saw me as doom and gloom on one hand, but then I had this uh, this relatively positive manner, and, and I thought like a vision where it's like, look, like we don't have to just wait for the truckers to riot like we can try and like build a runway for everyone so that we can start like planning for a future that i think is like right around the corner and then now the pandemic ended up speeding it up
1: yeah i think you're exactly right i think your campaign did so much work in moving the conversation in a positive direction and bringing up bringing up things and ways of looking at, at problems that I thought it was very, very constructive. You know, you, the effect you had on the campaign, oh, the effect your campaign had on the conversation is still profound and being felt. And I think you talking about AI taking jobs and stuff, I, it, it's so weird to me that people don't want to hear that stuff or talk about it, where if you think about it for 30 seconds, it's inevitable that that's where we're headed and that that's something that we need to be ready for and deal with, you know, especially because we're dealing with we're in this situation where massive tech companies control our lives in ways that are so complete and thorough we've given up so much just to have um, just, just just for convenience that it's it's really shocking how quickly it how quickly it happened and, I, I, you know, obviously, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook is, is, is in the news all the time. I think that's a great example of, of a massive, massive tech force that's affected the way that's affected the world and I believe to be a profoundly, profoundly negative way. And I, so, so I think these conversations are, are essential. We can't ignore them anymore.
0: I have friends in Silicon Valley who could not watch Silicon Valley, or show on HBO, because they said it just uh, hit too close to home.
1: <laughs> they were like, it's too real. It's you know the first time it—it's really interesting because our show we started filming in 2011, I think, maybe 2000. No, wait, wait, what? It, maybe 2013. I, I forget. But when we, when I was doing the pilot, you know, it was my judge. It was HBO. I told my friends I was like, I'm doing this pilot. They're like, what was it? What's it about? And I said, it's called Silicon Valley. And they were like, oh, is it set in the 90s? I'm like, no, there's crazy shit going on in Silicon Valley right now. It's weird to think back then we didn't know. I mean, some people did, but we didn't know who Elon Musk was. We didn't know who Peter Thiel was. Like, people had not heard these names. Now these are household names. Um, In the six years that we ran or the seven years that we ran, the way that people look at Silicon Valley has changed so quickly. And for me, it was a real wake-up call because I think it was season two or three. We would sort of do these trips, right? We would go to Silicon Valley and we would show the episode and we'd sort of like tour companies and get to see what they were working on. And they were very excited to have us because, because, you know, we're, (laughs) we're doing a show about, about, about what they do. I was stunned at what little thought was going into the moral and ethical ramifications of the technology that they were working on. Um, I remember, I won't name the company, but they were showing us this new product that's now on the market that many people have. And they were like, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. And so we brought up a privacy concern and it wasn't, they didn't have, they were shocked that they were asked this question. They didn't even have like a fake corporate answer ready to go. They were stunned and a little upset and disappointed that we would even think of that. I feel like there's a sense in the tech world, and and I'm sure you know this much better than I do, that technology is completely amoral. Uh, It's a tool, you make it and how it's used. Well, it's not up to us. Well, I don't think that's right. I think, first of all, there's no way that laws can keep up with technology. And I do think it's the responsibility of people developing this technology to consider, uh, the negative, the possible negative uses for it. You know, um, you, I can, I mean, the, the deep fake stuff, all that stuff, I, I don't think you can just like keep developing and close your eyes and ears to the fact that these things can be, can be really misused. They're being misused
0: every day um, in part because they serve the almighty marketplace. And we know right now the marketplace <laughs> just wants to monetize us and our attention um, whether or not that's good for democracy, our mental health, humanity, free will, our ability to come together and solve problems, our ability to settle on facts or the truth—you uh, know—we're we're all now uh, just subject to this this uh, surveillance capitalism machine uh, that sells and resells us to the tune of two hundred billion I mean, plus
1: a year. Yeah, that's what you always hear. Where you're like, if the app is free, you're the product.
0: And uh, so. Right now, I'm trying to help people uh, wake up to what's going on with our data and our privacy rights. There's actually a prop Mm. in California in November, Prop 24, that I'm super excited about that. It's going to create a dedicated uh, data protection agency in the state of California to look out for California uh, data and privacy mm. rights, which right now a lot of companies are, frankly, just totally abusing and just being like, whatever, like there, there's no enforcement. Of course. So if yeah. Prop 24 passes in November, then all of a sudden uh, the state has to create an enforcement agency and mechanism. And then you're going to see corporate behavior change <laughs> because, because until there's That's... until there's actually someone looking after it and then showing up and saying, hey, like there's a problem here. Uh, so, so believe it or not, this stuff is cutting edge right now. This stuff's literally on the ballot in like a matter of weeks.
1: Good. I mean, that's the tricky thing. You know, if you see, like, these hearings when, when, like, Zuckerberg or or any of these folks go, the questions they're being asked, it's it's scary. scary They're not inspiring. (laughs) It's it's not inspiring stuff. About the most basic tech stuff. Like, it just is, it's really upsetting that. Um, I, I, honestly, I mean this Pro- Prop Twenty Four vote yes on Prop Twenty Four. That's good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use t- Twitter to get that word out, because I do think that that is sort of the big existential crisis that we're heading towards right now. Is is uh, is big tech. I think, I think it's a formidable foe. I feel like for all the great stuff that the internet has done, I think it's it's it's. I mean, you know, it's. It's, it's fractured the conversation so much to the point where it's not even a conversation. I remember when I was a computer science major, I would go to my professor's office and he was this guy, he was like a philosopher and a computer scientist. And he was one of the you know original guys who was involved with the internet and stuff. And he had this quote on his desk from a group of early people who were sort of trying to talk about uh, technology and the benefits it's gonna provide humanity. And it said something like, The rise of the internet is the promise of the return of voice. Um, And I found that so inspiring. I was like, that's true. The promise of the internet is I can talk to someone in Bulgaria. You know, I can like have a real conversation with them. You really can connect with people who have different experiences from you, different perspectives from you, see the world entirely differently, and you can have a conversation with them. In reality, what's happened is you just find the people who exactly agree with you, and then you just talk amongst yourselves and then you yell at the other people who disagree with you so uh, it, it's really gone in a completely different direction than i think these original sort of uh, tech thinkers had thought had thought it would um and I, I i don't know how i don't know i don't know where we go i feel like the internet is like this serpent that we made that's now swallowing us whole
0: uh, one of my goals uh, is to get the serpent under control, kamal and like, I may actually have that job uh, before too long if if things head in a particular direction. Uh, let,
1: I hope they head in a particular direction.
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny, I was just musing to myself the fact that uh, I feel like you're one of the most prominent voices in this direction because of Silicon Valley, which is sort of ironic because obviously, it you know, it was a television show and yet i feel like everyone identifies you so closely <laughs> with this set of issues in part because you know we just watch you on hbo uh, for years on end
1: i know and i'm just saying stuff that they wrote for me i really shouldn't be the guy don't look to me for any insight into it but but you know, we we the, the the writers and the creators were very very. I mean, they know knew all these CEOs, right? So we really—it's oh, it,
0: really... all real. Like you know, the the fact that it's yeah. like art imitating life or whatnot. Plus the fact that you you're genuinely like a computer science grad who worked in the field for years. Uh, so I don't know if that helped them cast you, where they're like, oh, this guy's really convincing.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, no, because I was really bad at computer science. I never got it, but I was just it's funny to go from sitting behind a row of computers being the worst guy to then being on set, sitting behind a row of computers and being the best guy. Like I was the only one out of the cast that like understood a little bit what the code was. Uh, so that was a weird experience. It didn't really, you know, it didn't really help me too, too much knowing the tech side of it. Um, really what, you know, my, my approach to it was just was the character itself. Like, that type of guy was was really my way in.
0: Well, you did a phenomenal job uh, on that show. I can't wait to see you on the big screen uh, with the Eternals. You're a literal hero to so many people uh, and a force for progress and reason uh, and humanity. I mean, your family story is incredible. It's such an American story. And we have to let people know that you're american your mom's american i'm american and that uh, america is us it doesn't look like a particular um, set of images that maybe one one political party is putting out there being like hey let's just try and like conflate this with america you know america is us it's you it's it's uh, you and yours
1: exactly america looks like the world because the world is in america i remember the day i got my citizenship you're in a room and you, you sort of do the pledge and everything, and then a video played. And the video was a music video that they had made for this, Proud to be an American. And it was like cowboys on horses and like little white girls on swings. And, and then Obama it, comes was on. Was it the actual song, I'm proud to
0: be an American? Wow, they really use that? When you become a citizen, it's
1: officially the citizenship song of the United States. I'll tell you, man, it sounds cheesy, but I had tears running down my face in my head. I was like, I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. But then Obama comes on and he gives you this speech, this really moving speech about welcome to the country. You're here now, you're wow. one of us. And I just felt so full of hope and optimism. And I don't know what's happening with people who become citizens now. I can't imagine that there's a, there's a, <laughs> there's a video that plays that makes anybody feel I have a feeling well, they replaced the Obama
0: good. part. <laughs> I have a feeling that they, 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 they like changed that part. They
1: probably kept the first part uh,
0: though.
1: Oh, I'm sure they kept the first part. There may be some MAGA hats added to it.
0: Oh, I, I tweeted during the RNC that I really like that song uh, because I do really do like that song. Like, proud, they they play it, about proud to yeah. be and I was like, I really like this song. And then all these I folks. I know, it's tough all these folks were like, "Oh, like I used to love it. Or, oh, they ruined it for me." And I was like, "Oh, they haven't ruined it for me. I still just love this song. Um, yeah. yeah, so you're you're relating to that experience. I mean, um uh, like I, I'm proud you're an American. Uh, I know a lot of us are kamal, and hopefully we can keep that that uh, energy and belief strong so that your mom feels right at home here, uh, you know, really uh, as soon as this elections up, but even before then,
1: I hope so. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Thank you. Thank you. Such a pleasure.
0: Kamal Nanjani. let's keep an eye out. He's got a podcast with Emily, uh, and he has the show, Little America. It's on uh, Apple Plus. So you can check out some inspiring stories of uh, immigrants doing great things around the country.
1: And that show is free right now. So you don't need to have a, a subscription to Apple TV Plus. Just go on your Apple TV, search for Little America, and you can watch all the episodes for free.
0: Little America's free on Apple Plus, that's great. <laughs> Yang speaks, people love free. Uh, so yeah,
1: check it out. Yeah, I know you have the time to watch it right now.